I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. I want to thank you for joining me. If you're listening in New York City on WBAI, I hope you will support that station and, and, and essentially uh, thank them for, for putting me on the air. You can uh, support the station by going to 212-209-2950 or go to give2wbai.org and make a donation of any size. If you're listening in Washington, D.C., I, again, I appreciate you tuning in, and, and I hope that you'll support WPFW and uh, thank them for uh, giving me airtime uh, on, their, on their great station. And you can support them by going to 202-588-9739 or going online at wpfwdc.org slash donate. Um, again, these stations uh, rely almost solely on your contributions. So uh, you can't assume that um, I will always be here, nor can you assume that, uh, that the stations will always be there. Unless you step up and support these stations, that's the only way that they will continue to provide you the programming they do. So, um, again, I want to thank you for, for listening. If you are um, catching us uh, streaming on Facebook, um, you can see that I'm wearing my, uh, my Caucasians T-shirt. I'm, I'm running out of time to, uh, to, to wear certain uh, items of clothing because we are really uh, putting an end to... Um, to the high school, especially the high school mascot issue. We're having a lot of success. Obviously, in New York, there's been a ban issued, and we're in the process of, uh, of going through school by school. Um, you know, it's funny. One of the questions that got asked recently was, how many schools are there in New York that still have native mascots? And, you know, and even the, um, the deputy commissioner of, of NYSED, I heard him on a, a, a radio show just yesterday, and he had guessed that it was between 30 and 50. Well, I know because I've been working with, uh, with one of the, um, the folks from, from NYSED. I'm on the um, Indigenous uh, Mascot uh, Advisory Council, and, and I've been working with, this, with one individual. And she and her staff have been going through the websites of every school um, to determine how many schools there are. They're only about halfway through the alphabet. Now, I'm not saying they don't have some farther down the alphabet that, that they already knew, but in terms of checking schools that they hadn't inquired with, and they go to their website and, and verify through their website what their mascots are. They're over 120 schools already. Now, NCAI, National Congress of the American Indian, had, had um, at some point had posted that there was 130 schools, but a lot of those schools may have already changed from NCAI's number, but... Um, there's some suggestion that, that when all these schools are gone through, that there may be 150 schools that still currently, according to their website, have native mascots. Now, many of those schools are already in the process of changing their mascot as a result of this, this ban that was issued last November. Um, the requirement, which will become essentially law for all intents and purposes uh, by in the next couple of weeks, when the New York State Board of Regents uh, confirms and ratifies the uh, the rules as, as they exist. Um, and that suggests that schools have till the end of this school year to pass through their school board a resolution detailing their plan for getting rid of their mascot, what, what exactly they're doing. And then they have until the end of the 24-25, uh, 2024-2025 school year to have gotten rid of all of the mascot imagery, all of it. So um, I haven't heard of one school yet 
that has gotten or has been granted permission by the nation that their territories are associated or the, their land or ancestral land is associated with, um, uh, permission from, from any nation yet. Uh, we're still waiting to hear whether the city of Salamanca, which is on the Allegheny territory of the Seneca Nation, is granted permission from the Seneca Nation to keep their, their imagery and their name, the Warriors. Um, many of us are pulling for uh, the Seneca Nation to decline that permission, uh, but we'll see. That may be the only one <laughs> in, in the whole state because that's, uh, as far as the rules went, um, they, and I think this rule was actually put in place because of Salamanca and the Seneca Nation. They, were, they wanted to give the Seneca Nation some deference because the, the school district is within their, um, their current territory, not just their ancestral land, but their current territory. Um, but um, I'm hoping that the Seneca Nation doesn't allow all of the negative issues we know are associated with Native mascots be dismissed simply because of the, lo the location of this school district. It's still a predominantly white school district. Um, the Native student body may be 20%. I know the school superintendent was trying to suggest that it was 50 I don't think so, and, and and frankly, if you look at the graduation rates from the from the Salamanca City School, it um, it certainly isn't fifty percent of the uh, you know of the students. So, um, so again, I'm I'm hoping that uh, the the Seneca Nation does not grant permission, but um, obviously I don't have any say <laughs> any say in that. What I do have a say in as a part of this advisory council is is looking at some of the appeals or the requests or uh, that schools have made, saying, well. If we change the the logo but keep the word, can um, can we continue as long as we try to associate that word with something else? And we pretty much dismiss most of that as a, as a council, not me personally, but um, I have been on a couple of uh, um, news broadcasts. Um, I look, I'm I'm different. The, the only difference between me and the rest of the, the people on the council is I'm not a tribal employee. I'm not a chief or a counselor or a tribal official. Um, I do what I do, and I've been doing it all along, and I didn't stop because I got on this board. So, um, so I still I do I still do speak out, um, and and I'm willing to explain what so many people don't understand. And and again, I w it was interesting to hear James Baldwin, the deputy commissioner of NYSED, on a show called the Capitol Press Room, and uh, in, uh, that airs out of Albany. Um, and, and many other, other NPR stations. It was interesting to hear him lowball the number of schools and miss it by so much. I mean, uh, you know, I, I thought, I knew there were at least 60, but I suspected there were many more because frankly, I don't have a full list of all the school districts. And, and as we start going through it, we realize that, you know, there, there may be 150, maybe more schools still in New York that in spite of being told 21 years ago that they had to get rid of it, dug in. And, you know, so it was, um, again, if you, if you get a chance and, you know, you can, I don't usually advocate people here listen to other programs, but uh, Capitol Press Room featuring James Baldwin, he did answer a lot of questions um, uh, correctly. <laughs> I just think he got the number uh, quite wrong on the, uh, you know, on the, on the number of schools. And, you know, and, it, and it's interesting because, look, I'm one of the people who try to always explain that this is related the, the mascot issue and the whole practice, the, you know, the white privilege associated with these, these towns, almost always white towns, and, you know, especially the era. I mean, some of these mascots have been in place for 50, 60, 70 years. So trust me, white people controlled it. 
White people decided it, white people selected it, and then white people created you know, all of the characteristics they wanted to, uh, you know, to associate with that imagery. And that's why you have, you know, schools like in, in New York that call themselves the Indians and they have like a Plains Indian headdress. They don't even have, you know, you know, uh, Eastern woodland imagery for their, uh, you know, for their mascot. Some of them do, but they changed it because they all had the, the typical Hollywood Indian, uh, you know, profile on there. Um, you know, and, and you go to some of these schools and you realize they call themselves Indians, but you, if you ask them, well, what Indians are you claiming to be? They, they well, you know, just uh, Indians. They, they, don't, they don't even know. All they do know is they're not talking about India. They're talking about Native people. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, and I've said this before, what's more racist than, than white people using Native people for mascots is their response when you tell them that it's wrong or that, or that they can't. And not from everybody. Look, we would not have the success in this fight if we didn't have a whole lot of people join us in this fight. And that's, that's not Native people. That's white people, black people, people of you know, various ethnicities. Um, but I got to tell you, in every school district, if it were ever put to a vote, the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of the people, of, of the townspeople, those pitchfork-carrying townspeople would be to, you know, never change. Oh, that's all part of the woke cancel culture, and, you know, and, and they, they give all of these, you know, these typical right-wing tropes out there. Um, you know, and, but, and it's amazing, because in New York, everybody thinks New York is this, is this, you know, strongly Democrat party, you know, state. Um, and it is. <laughs> but these little towns... You know, and they may not represent the majority of the population of the state because they are small rural towns. But, man, they're dug into the right, folks. I mean, they're, they're Trumpers all the way. They, you know, they buy everything that, you know, that is dished out by the right, you know, including the response to Trump getting indicted, all that stuff. It's, it's pretty remarkable because, you know, you, again, the assumption is that the folks in New York know a little better. Well, in New York City, maybe, and, and maybe some of the urban areas, but in these small towns, man, they, they are dug in deep. And, you know, and, and yet always has to make you wonder, how is it that they can identify with, with somebody like Donald Trump? I, I'll, I'll never, quite, never quite get it. But, uh, you know, and, and again, because they, they've had these things in place for sometimes 70 years, they think that they're entitled. I mean, so... Not only does it take white privilege to, to, to take somebody else's identity, redefine it, sometimes be completely wrong in that definition and everything from the images to the, to the names to, you know, to, all, to the characteristics. Of course, you don't use native people for your mascot if you're not going to um, uh, tout us as violent, aggressive, you know, fierce, you know, all of these things that you associate with you know, with mach machismo and, and, you know, this, again, this, this virility, I guess. Uh, it doesn't do anything for, you know, for, 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 for uh, women or girls in these schools. And, in fact, I always find it funny when you, when you go to a school that calls themselves the Indians. And then, then, but they don't refer to the girl sports as Indians. They say, oh, the lady Indians. Because they've already predetermined that the word Indians is masculine. Yeah, it's 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 really bizarre. But uh, look, um, on 
the 18th of this month, the New York uh, State Board of Regents will formalize the rules. And then any of these, you know, pretty, pretty much the, the requests by schools to, uh, to get a pass, they're most of them being denied. But, but again, should, should like this, the Salamanca School District, get permission from the Senate because we'll, we'll see what that looks like. Um, I don't know how long we as, a, as an indigenous mascot advisory council will, be, uh, will have a function here. I know we do up until that point, and, and I suspect we may be uh, involved in uh, perhaps advising. Look, there is a, a part of the New York State Department of Education, or Education Department, I said, um, that does have indigenous um, and native um, issues and topics and history. Uh, you know, but the problem that we, we have is that we can't just talk about us historically. We have to talk about us contemporarily we, that we're still here and so I mean we may have a, we may have a longer role and but that has yet to be determined and, and I don't know how long we will be involved in processing some of the requests from schools but I know one thing we are also participating in making sure that some schools aren't missed um, it was an interesting one school in particular in a town called Shenandoah they call themselves the Plainsman because the word Shenandoah is is a bastardized version of a Mohawk word that refer, refers to that area being uh, like, a, like plains. Not Western plains, like Plains Indians plains, but, uh, or, or whatever, Plains Native. But, um, you know, a, a large Oa is always, or Goa is usually large, so it means a great plain area, area of plain. Uh, so they call themselves the Plainsmen. Well, that didn't jump out at me at all. But their mascot is a horse, um, which kind of, Suggest that they're thinking like the, the Northern Plains, I guess, and, and more of the horse culture out there. But it's a horse, and of course, they got to put a headband on the horse with feathers. So, you know, I'm not asking for a wholesale change for Shenandoah, but, you know, perhaps drop the headband on the horse. I mean, who ever heard of a horse wearing a headband? Um, they dehumanize us, but then they humanize, you know, um, you know a horse. I, I don't know. So, um, but anyway. This is kind of what we're what we're we are going through, and and you know, and there's a lot of detail, and there's there's a lot to consider. I mean, uh, you know, oftentimes we are talking about schools that that perhaps want to use um, some other imagery for the word warrior. Well, the problem is for seventy years or fifty years, you've you've used native imagery for that word. So if you now all of a sudden use a Spartan soldier, well, why don't you just call yourself Spartans then? And the, and the crazy part is, if you have to change all of that anyway, and go the expense because you you haven't heeded the uh, the the call for the change from 21 years ago, then if you're going to go through that expense of changing your uniforms or your logo and all that other stuff, you know, make it clean, make a clean cut. Stop calling yourself warriors when when uh, because you've you've already indelibly connected that word as has you know most of you know, the American vernacular to, to native people. And, and that goes with braves and chiefs and, you know, and any number of other, other words. I was even asked if, if using us uh, by our names, you know, which, which would never quite be correct. Cause even, you know, look, I, I live in Seneca territory, but the Seneca, I mean, that word isn't really theirs. They're the Onundawaga, the people of the great hills or the mountains. I'm Mohawk, that's Gunyagahaga, the people of the land of Flint. My wife's Oneida, Onyota Aga, the people where the, where the stones stand. I mean, they're, they're, we all have these you know, the, uh, words in our language, 
But we got called Oneidas. We got called um, Mohawks. We got called Senecas. So when a school uses that name, usually that name isn't accurate, any more accurate than calling, you know, than calling us Indians. But, um, uh, but we know what they're referencing. And so this is what we're kind of forced to deal with. All right, another topic I want to get onto. And, you know, and, and I don't know, if Reggie, if you're available here, but I, I find it interesting that the, um, uh, the Vatican repudiated the doctrine of discovery. And I talked about this last week because it was brand new. I heard. So it was brand new news last week. But, you I know, heard. But there's a lot of conversation about the difference between rescinding the doctrine of discovery and repudiating it. Because, look, we can all repudiate it. We can all call down and reject you know, some racist um, you know, dogma out there, right? But, it, right? but to rescind it means that it was yours. And let's be honest, the doctrine of Christian discovery, which is the more accurate name, it was a manifestation of church doctrine. It came out of, you know, a series of papal bulls that started in, you know, 1455 with King Ferdinand going in and pillaging Western Africa and, and the Pope praising it at the time. Pope Nicholas V, I think, he, he was praising it. Oh, yeah, go, go in there. Look, you have the right, the God-given right, to go in there and take all of their possessions and subject those inhabitants, because they're not Christians, to perpetual servitude. So this was the church authorizing slavery and, and the pillaging and the taking of everything, uh, you know, <laughs> including the taking of women. And by taking, I mean taking in the broader sense. Um, <laughs> so all of that. Uh, so it starts then. Then once Columbus, you know, gets the reports of Columbus striking land as he was sailing east, uh, you know, or west to go east, um, the Pope at that time, uh, issues a issues a a papal bull praising um, you know King, uh, Queen Elizabeth and uh, and uh, and uh, the King of Spain for for spreading Christendom and and again promoting more of the same all of this supporting the colonialization or the 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 spread of Christendom throughout the world and and again this is where the expression terra nullis comes in where they suggest that. If a land is only occupied by non-Christians, then you don't have to consider it occupied at all. You don't have to consider them. You can consider they have a right to be there like the animals, so you can dehumanize the people, in, even in your perception, to say, okay, yeah, they're here, but they're not really human beings. They're not men. They're not per people. And so this doctrine of Christian discovery, which, which and let me just lay it out simple. It's this notion that a Christian nation can claim the land and possessions, uh, including the freedom of, 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 of a non-Christian people, when they enter into a land that, uh, especially when they're first, when they're the first Christian nation to discover a land that is only occupied by pagans, they can take it all. And, and this actually gets codified in law throughout the world. So even with the church repudiating it, it doesn't change it because it's already been codified in law. It's considered international legal doctrine. Ruth Bader Ginsburg cited it in 2005. Um, and, and, and it's not just about land. It's about jurisdiction. In fact, what, uh, what Ruth Bader Ginsburg was, uh, when she cited it, she was talking about the Oneida Nation not just acquiring land in the open market, but then asserting their jurisdiction over the land. See, it wasn't, I mean, Look at America. Can't anybody buy land? Yeah, kind of. But what does that title look like? And 
when the Oneidas purchased it and said, no, we're reclaiming this land as our land, not as U.S. land, not as New York, New York state land. Um, we're returning it back to its original, you know, original title. And so Ruth Bader Ginsburg says, no, you can't do that. She, she even cited this other thing called the doctrine of impossibility, and, <laughs> which seems crazy. And that doctrine <laughs> suggests that once, no matter how you lost the land, whether it was fraud, deception, you know, whatever, it, however, once you've lost the ability to assert jurisdiction over that land, they're saying it's impossible for you to, to reassert that jurisdiction. Now, she says that, and she cites a case out in Sioux territory. I think Yankton Sioux. I don't know even what, what state they would be considered, but um, Montana or Dakotas or something. And she cites that uh, a case out there, and that's where this doctrine of impossibility. And that, go, that case was like 60, 60 years old. When the fact of the matter is, in 1990, the Seneca Nation, because of a, of a lease that the uh, state and others were claiming was really like a sale, which involved the city of Salamanca, the Senecas um, were offered a settlement act that was pushed through Congress that not only paid them what they were, you know, so much money that they were duped out of. I mean, it, it was like $60, $60 million, not a lot of money, but... Uh, but they also had as a provision of that Salamanca Lease Settlement Act that they could use that money that they were being awarded to buy, that, uh, you know, to buy any parcels back. Um, not only, well, the city of Salamanca is on Seneca land, but, but any, in their, anywhere in their ancestral lands, they, they could use some of that land to, to reacquire lost land, lands that weren't considered. And they would acquire that land in absolute title. And, and be able to assert their... And that was from 1990. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg, again, liberal darling on the court, a Jewish woman, uses the doctrine of Christian discovery to ignore the fact that, yes, there have been a few instances where, where the courts have had to rule, uh, rule the other way. And in this case, case, when she cites the doctrine of impossibility, she cites a case from Sioux territory, but ignores another Haudenosaunee case or Six Nations case, just you know, uh, 100, 150 miles down the road where the, the, the Congress has given the Seneca Nation a path to reacquire lost land and assert their jurisdiction out of it. So, I mean, that's how bad that ruling really was. And that's 2005. So when we talk about papal bulls from the, from the, uh, you know, the 15th and 16th century, yeah, that sounds like ancient stuff, but it's still relevant today. And so here's the thing. About the, uh, about the Vatican's repudiation. They owned no part of it. What they said was, yes, there were earlier paper bull, paper, yeah, they were about paper, papal bulls that were a little unclear. And that some nations, the colonial powers at the time, used those, those papal bulls and manipulated the intent of those papal bulls to justify oftentimes horrendous acts. And so the church doesn't acknowledge that their papal bulls authorized the doctrine or created the doctrine of discovery. They blame the nations who manipulated the intent of those papal bulls th that created. Now, there's no question the nations had to, had to make these, that church dogma into international law, essentially, or common law within the international community. But the church knew exactly what they were doing. And you know what? Here's the other thing that in their statement, they, they mentioned the... Um, a papal bull that came out 
after the series of papal bulls that created the doctrine of discovery, which was um, in 1537, the, the papal bull was called Sublimus Deus, the sublime God. Um, and in that, the reason they issued this papal bull was because there were bishops and priests that were with the, uh, some of this colonization, that this, in particular that Spain was involved in, in South America. And they, they witnessed the atrocities. Look, if you ever listen, watched my, um, my Columbus video on YouTube, um, you know, Bartolome de las Casas and, and others had, had really detailed the, the atrocities committed by the, by the Spanish. Um, not just by Columbus, but by the Spanish people that, you know, or the conquistadors, essentially, that were going into these, these, I mean, just testing the sharpness of their blade by slicing somebody's arm off. I mean, the, the atrocities were incredible. Feeding babies to their dogs, to their, their fighting dogs. I mean, uh, not just babies, um, you know, adults too. But I mean, it, it was, I mean, the atrocities were extreme. And the priests were, were complaining back to the Vatican about this. So one priest in particular finally got the ear of, uh, of the Pope, and, uh, and, th and this was, I think, Pope um, Paul III. You know, got enough of an audience with, with the higher-ups in the Vatican, um, detailing the atrocities over, you know, not just the slavery, but all of it. And so they submitted, so they, the, papal, the Pope issued this papal bull. And I'll just read one excerpt. It says, we define and declare that the said Indians and all others, other people who may be discovered by Christians, are by no means to be deprived of their liberty or their possessions of their property, even though they be outside the Christian faith. And it also went on to condemn the slave, the, the enslavement of, of Native people. And of course, this should have condemned the, the enslavement of, of black people too, because this is all the same thing, right? This, the, uh, the first papal bull was about creating, you know, creating the slave trade. Mm -hmm. So this That's is in right. 1537. <laughs> well, it didn't end slavery. And you know what? Uh, it didn't no. end the actions of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church would no. be enriched by all of the, the gold and silver and, frankly, you know, some of the profiteering from slavery that would go on for, for centuries after that. So to listen to the Vatican today say, well, those earlier papal bulls weren't quite understood. And, and by the way, we issued this one, which—, which and, and you know what? The Catholic Church over the years has said, well, we don't really follow the Christian, the doctrine of Christian discovery anymore. We, we don't really subscribe to that. And, the, and they would cite this one all the time. And, and a couple other, I mean, look, Pope Francis, you know, has made overtures to indigenous people and that kind of stuff. But he's always condemned it as the actions of others and the atrocities committed by others against indigenous people. And, and when he went to, went to Canada last year, he went to Canada Mm -hmm. and, and apologized for residential schools. Not because he felt personally or, or that the Vatican felt responsible, but because some of the churches, you know, that were Catholic churches, but not the church, but some of these other, you know, churches, including other denominations, were abusing Native people. And, and they essentially were enslaving them because they were being forced to work in the fields. All of the stuff that would stand in stark violation of this papal bull from 1537, which obviously meant nothing. It didn't stop Spain. It didn't even stop the guy that, that this pope um, made a saint, Junipero Serra, out, out in what is now California. He was, he, he was traveled with conquistadors who were taking women, you know, raping women, uh, murdering Native people, and he'd gather up the children and then baptize them. And if they died after that, 
it was okay because he he saved their souls. And that's what this this pope made this that guy, that priest, you know, a a saint. I don't know what the I don't know what the miracle was that he performed. Um, you know, some said he walked to Mexico City, which isn't true, but uh, anyway. Um, anyway, so when I hear the Catholic Church repudiating this thing and yet claiming no responsibility. And, it, and again, I, I understand why people said, yeah, they repudiated it, but they didn't rescind it. Because rescinding it would have meant it was theirs to rescind. You don't have to own a, a, you know, some you know, atrocity to condemn an atrocity. And, and that's what, so that's what the church decided to do. So just like when they went to Canada to condemn residential schools and take no responsibility for them. You know, look, I just, in the news break, we, we heard... Um, um, about this, uh, these these deviant priests in New England, and and how most of the mm. victims have died, and and how you know the details of some of that stuff had just just been released, and and how terrible it is. Let me tell you flat out. No matter how heinous any of these actions of these individual priests were, in any of these um, these church dioceses, in any of them, it will pale by comparison to what native children went through at these residential schools. Because yes, they were abused, sexually abused. Yes, they were beaten. Yes, they were murdered. Yes, they were uh, driven to the point of death, either through malnutrition or, or d- being deprived of, of healthcare or, or whatever else. And as the United States begins to reckon with its role in residential schools, and, and, and look, Canada gets an F for their so-called Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the fact that they failed to follow any of the action items that came out of that commission report, including the idea of, of determining how many Native children were buried at these, at these school sites. It's the nations, it's the individual nations and some of the support they're getting from, from others that are getting the ground-penetrating radar up there that has now found, I think it's close to you know 8,000 children have been identified as buried in either mass graves or unmarked wow. graves on the Canadian side. And, wow. and you know what? In the United States, it's going to be triple, or triple or more. Because well, there were three times as many residential schools, much greater population uh, of Native kids that, that were forced into these schools. And we looked at some place like that, like the Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania. That school has has a graveyard, and and uh, with marked graves. Some of them, they apparently didn't know the names of the children, so it just says unknown. I don't know how you have a school and you don't know the name of your children, especially since one of the first things that these schools did was change their native names to some Christian name like Mary or Joshua or something like that. So, I mean, so they they had like 200 graves there. And one of the guys that that I was uh, speaking to who was a a graduate of Dartmouth and who's been really on this thing determined that Carlisle Indian School was probably responsible for closer to seven or 800 deaths of Native children. Because one of the things that Carlisle would do is if a, chil- if a child would uh, be on his deathbed, they'd send him home. Oftentimes, they, the, the child would die before they even got home. That way, they could claim it, it, the child didn't die on, in their custody. So we're talking about hundreds more than, than that graveyard uh, ever represented. And if you get out into some of these areas that are a little bit farther out, no, no man's land, because Carlisle's right there in Pennsylvania. You know, it, it, was, on a, it was set up in an old army, uh, I think Civil War era army barracks or something like that. Um, but you get out, out west where, you know, where these 
churches had the power of attorney over, a complete power of attorney over these children, and they were accountable to no one. They had no public scrutiny to anything that they were doing. It gets worse. And so in, in much the same way as I look at this repudiation or the apology that the Pope offered in Canada as being meaningless, it's meaningless because, look, and the church knows better, right? The church has this thing called contrition, <laughs> where, where in order to be forgiven for your sins, you have to do something. You know, yeah. You, you say oh, so they're going to give the land back then. It, that There it is, right? Yeah, no, they're not. <laughs> and they're, and but, they, are, they also, <laughs> they aren't going to call on the United States to say, look, all of the, uh, the, the things that you did in the name of the doctrine of Christian discovery is legally invalid. And, and, and in case you've heard that expression before, let me read to you the third affirmation of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples that Canada and the United States voted against. It says, affirming further that all doctrines, policies, and practices based on or advocating superiority of peoples or individuals on the basis of national origin, racial, religious, ethnic, or cultural differences are racist, scientifically false, legally invalid, morally condemnable, and socially unjust. So the United Nations in 2007 just a couple of years after uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's citing of the Doctrine of Discovery, clearly repudiated all doctrines, but but this is almost specifically written to address the Doctrine of Discovery. And, and they call anything that was done in the name of that doctrine legally invalid. So do you think the United States was going to vote for this? Oh, hell no. And, and the fact that you have, you know, during the Barack Obama administration, had... Um, a series of meetings, and I went to one of them, um, or, uh, some down in, in, in Washington at the State Department that was hosting these, um, to revisit the, the United States' uh, role or, or position on the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Um, and it was clear why they rejected it. And, and, you know, and, and I asked that question. They said, well, there were some in, during the Bush administration that felt that this was uh, going to change international law. Well, I think the declaration that some some of your illegal practices, your racist practices, are are legally invalid, um, that should go without saying. But so that's why the United States voted against this thing. Plus, the United States wanted to say, look, when we talk about self determination for Native peoples, we don't mean it in the international sense of the word. We mean internal self determination. Like, yeah, they can put their own signs up, and they can you know do certain things, but we're not talking about sovereignty or sovereignty over land. We're not talking about that kind of wholesale notion of self-determination. And, and that came from the National Security Agencies. They, they rejected this UN declaration from 2007 that every nation but five, United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, did I say five? Yeah, um, maybe it was four, <laughs> but, but voted against it. Every and and the other, and the nations who did approve it still didn't take any action to make sure that nations who were in violation of this this minimum standard would ever be be held to task. So, so yes, we should be able to make the argument that all of the things that were done in the name of the doctrine of discovery and and the fact that the doctrine doctrine of discovery was born out of church dogma should be considered legally invalid, especially. When you look at that, that dogma was racist and, and, and morally unjust, all of that stuff. But 
That's not where we're at. What we see time and time again, it's like the, you know, the, the debate over reparations for slavery. It's like you know, any of this stuff. We see you know, white people clutching to their pearls and their wallets you know, as if they have not benefited historically and still benefited. May I remind people <laughs> that New York State pulled 2.2 or will have pulled $2.2 billion out of Seneca Gaming when the Senecas only made about that much money. And they did it because they had the legal authority to push through, not only uh, force the Senecas to enter into a compact, but in a, way, in a roundabout way, force them into revenue sharing um, in exchange for what the state claimed would be a competitive advantage. Well, look, they were the only ones doing gaming, so they already had the competitive advantage. But they took the Senecas to the tune of, we'll have taken them for two, it's already over $2 billion, but by the end of uh, 20, I think next, end of this year, I think, it will be, um, it'll, it'll have reached $2.2 billion that the state of New York is still squeezing money out of the Seneca. So when we talk about some of this stuff, it isn't just 15th century, 16th century, 18th century. No, it's, it's today. And, and so the, and, and the point that I always make about residential schools, knowing the failure, the abject failure that um, uh, Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission resulted in, I'm saying as Native people, we have got to push back and push back hard when we talk about residential schools. We can't think that just telling the truth or some of the truth, and, and I, I gotta tell you, we're still getting drips and drabs of information out of, out of the, the clergy sex abuse scandal. So it's gonna be really, really hard to, to fully document the, all the atrocities that Native children went through at these residential schools. 350 residential schools across the United States. Uh, and, and plus some that were not federally funded, but were state funded. I live in Seneca territory. The Thomas Indian School here was a state residential school on Seneca territory. And look, at some point, we as Native people were so beaten down in our own territories that we were forced to, to support these schools. You know, especially, you know, the use of alcohol for, for treaty negotiations and, and flooding our territories with alcohol, much like the crack cocaine uh, issue with, uh, with, with some black communities. They gutted our culture so badly, uh, and we, we did. We, we had orphan children, and that's where some of these residential schools got their start, and then they turn into, no, we're going to go out and we're going to capture. We're going to kidnap all of those children. We're going to take them from their families, um, and especially since some of those territories were already dependent on some federal uh, programs, they, and those families were told, either you give us our kids or you're not getting any food. You give us your kids or we're not gonna, you're not going to get your food rations or, or whatever. I mean, you're talking about native territories that, w that were shrunk incredibly. And as a result, our population shrunk. And then when you take away all our children, many of whom didn't even have parents to go home to afterwards because their parents had, had perished, now you have the largest uh, period of land loss and the largest period of identity loss. And again, I always have to cite, at the same time that Native children were being tortured and beaten for trying to maintain some semblance of, of, of their identity, talking their language, maybe holding on to certain cult, you know, cultural items, they were being beaten for that while white kids could beat their oatmeal cans and put on their mom's makeup and play Indian at school. I mean, that revelation alone should be enough to shame 
any of these school districts, but it wasn't. Even as the numbers are coming out of Canada about the residential schools, knowing that those numbers hadn't even began to be tabulated on the United States side, even as that was making headline news. But you know what? These little white communities in rural New York and rural America, they didn't care. They didn't care. They had grabbed that identity and they claimed it. You know, so we, we get into a conversation, even as a part of this, this board that I'm on, we get into a conversation about, um, well, what about these town names like, like Shenandoah, like, you know, Schoharie, like uh, Schenectady? And, and, you know, what about all these town names that, are, that have native um, origins associated? Do we have to change those two? And look, we've never said you had to change the town's name unless it had the word squaw in it, and, you, know, you know, some landmark, Squaw Mountain or Squaw River or something like that. And, you know, that, that we've, we've asked, we've insisted needed to be changed. But, but we never said you had to change the name of the Mohawk River to something else. But when you adopt our imagery or our names or our references for, you know, for a mascot, now you're taking our identity. Now your kids are claiming to be Indians. They're claiming to be Mohawks. They're claiming to be warriors. They're claiming to be Braves. They're claiming to be all of these things, chiefs. That's different. Now we're talking about taking our identity and then redefining it to suit your needs. So that is what is, that's what erasure is, right? We aren't talking about removing a mascot as erasure. No, removing the mascot is a correction, a correction to the erasure that those mascots represent because every one of those mascots represent us as 18th century people. None of them represent, as, represent Native people as, as contemporary people. Today, living, breathing people today, they're all represented as relics of the past, as if we don't exist anymore. So that's the erasure. And of course, then when you misidentify us or you misrepresent us with your, with your image, you put a Plains Indian headdress on a, on a, you know, a Schoharie Indian. <laughs> I mean, and Schoharie is a town in, in central New York, by the way. But I mean, that's what's so absurd about all this stuff. So uh, look, I, I'm glad to be a part of this, this council. And, and let me again clarify, I'm not a paid employee of New York State. I did not turn over to the other side. I'm allowed to be a voice and have a seat at the table to make sure that the New York State Department, uh, uh, Education Department, doesn't um, cave in. And, and honestly, the experience that I've had with those folks from NYSED, they weren't going to cave in anyway. And maybe they did want, they, and I'm not saying they were using us as scapegoats here, but maybe they did want to make sure that we, may, re, we remained a voice in this, in, this, uh, in, in this debate. Because, you know, once it got banned, okay, well, the state enforces it. And, and we're already hearing the right making it sound like, oh, yeah, this is just Hochul's administration. Look, Hochul had nothing to do with this. You know, I, I despise Kathy Hochul. Um, and this, this agency, the Department of Education, Education Department, I should say, is not, um, is not a political entity. I mean, yes, it's a state agency. But these people are genuinely concerned about education. I'm not saying they get it all right. You know, we, we, we can have criticisms about, you know, any of the uh, education, public schools in, in the United States. Uh, you know, they're, they're not nearly where they should be um, for a variety of reasons. But I think most of these people have good intentions, and especially as it dealt uh, as in dealing with this mascot issue. But it wasn't political. And this is being done because of us, because of Native voices. Yes, we got allies that joined us. And we benefited from Black Lives Matter. And we benefited from social justice, uh, you know, moves. We, we have benefited from them. 
But it's been our voice. It's been our fight. It was us fighting the Washington football team and the Cleveland baseball team and continue to fight the Atlanta baseball team and the Kansas City football team and the Chicago hockey team. And we're taking on the schools in our states and and, in our areas. So I'm proud to be a part of this work. Um, I was before I sat on this council, um, and I'm glad to be on this council with with other Native voices throughout the state. And uh, I'm I'm glad I'm, I'm proud of the work we're doing. All right, hey, I have one other thing I wanted to discuss. But you know what? Before I do that, i got to go back a little bit to Dr. Discovery. I want to make sure that people remember why we even know this thing exists. And, and it's because of, because of incredible people like Stephen Newcomb. Now, Stephen has been a guest on my show many times. Not recently, but he's been a guest on my show many times. We promoted his book, uh, Pagans in the Promised Land. Um, I've screened the film both with Stephen and Sheldon Wolfchild, who is the director of the film, I've screened it um, in New York uh, when I was doing my events at Brooklyn Commons. Um, so the work that is, you know, that is covered in both the, this film and, and this book taught us all. It taught us all about what the doctrine of discovery was, where it came from, what the words meant, even in those papal bulls. And, and I've got to give um, you know, a special shout out. I'm, I'm hoping that I can get Stephen Newcomb to, to join me once again. I'd really like to hear his take on this repudiation from the, from the Vatican. But uh, I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention his book um, and the film that, you know, that frankly, I was, I was happy to be a, be a part of. I'm, I'm actually thanked in the credits on that one, by the way, um, because I, 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 I promoted Stephen's work um, uh, over the years. Now, but another book I want to talk about is, um, is the, uh, uh, the Mohawk Warrior Society, uh, a handbook of, on sovereignty and survival. This book, we're doing a book launch in New York City on May 2nd. So, yes, I am finally making the long trip to New York City from the comforts of my home here in Seneca Territory. So on May 2nd, I don't know exactly what time, but it is going to be in the evening. And it's going to be at, um, at uh, the Judson Church. I think it's Judson Memorial Church. It's down near um, Washington Square Park. Uh, Reggie, are you familiar with it? Uh, with... Yeah, I'm very familiar with that. Yeah, that's right on the corner of LaGuardia Place and I think... Uh, Washington Square Park South, and it's like you said, it's definitely in the vicinity of NYU. And uh, great, great, glad to hear making that jaunt down here, downstate. <laughs> yeah, so I am, um, you know, again making the trip. Um, that's going to be on May second. Um, I'm hoping I've recovered a little bit more <laughs> on, from uh, from what I've been battling as as far as my my knee goes. I'm walking around all right. I'll get I'll get along along fine, but. Uh, um, so, and I haven't been to New York city since COVID, you know, so, um, three years. Yeah. It's been a long time. So, um, it's, I look forward to going back and I know I've got some people that I really respect, guys that I consider my mentors who are also going to be there, who are, who are involved in the book. And I do have an excerpt in the book. I, I wrote a, a piece that's in the book. So I'm actually featured in the book. I'm not just going there as a, um, you know, as, as a groupie here, I'm, <laughs> I'm going there to talk about, um, not only the book, but the, the book, the feature of the book is, is a guy that, that taught us all, a guy by the name uh, who was called Gorunyak Daje, or otherwise known as Louis Hall. And um, in his work, um, the, the book has a lot of his artwork in it, um, uh, and he was an incredible artist, he was an incredible writer, but he was, uh, he was really a mentor to many of us. Um, and that's, and the, the book is really a tribute to him. He wrote the original Warrior's Handbook, um, that part of this book is based on. 
So um, uh, I look forward to making the trip to New York, and and for, and I'm going to talk about this a couple of times uh, between now and the event. I'll I'll nail down the time exactly. I don't know exactly what time it is, uh, but I do look forward to returning to New York. I know I've got uh, some some of our friends in New York who are working on this, um, Melissa Oaks and, and others, uh, and and I appreciate all the effort that's going into this book launch. Um, I've, I haven't really done one of these before. I've I've gone to book signings before, but I've never really been involved in one. So. So this was is kind of a new uh, new thing for me, and of course, just making the trip. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna do old school. I'm gonna take the train. I'm gonna jump on the train in Buffalo, the eight hour train ride to New York, uh, and do this event, and then uh, catch a train back home. But uh, uh, I look forward to it. I, frankly, I even look forward to the train ride. I haven't done that in a long time. So um, so uh, again, for those of you who are wondering if you know. You know, what is John Cain in the flesh? I will admit, since uh, since you know falling ill to my uh, my knee, I've lost some weight, so I'm a little bit less fleshy than I used to be. <laughs> so I look forward to getting down to New York and uh, <laughs> and seeing everybody. Reggie, I, I ho I'm hoping some of you guys from WBI can make it out. Uh, it, it'd be great to see you. Um, well, you, all you have to do is share that information and and see what happens. Well, and I'm gonna do. I'm, and the more I, well, there's a flyer that's being. Um, uh, Produced, I'll uh, and I'll like, post it, but I'll, I'll send one down there for WBAI to post. Awesome. Uh, and 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 look, uh, maybe I'll even I'll, I'll get some of the other folks uh, on the show who um, who are going to be at this book launch and uh, and talk about Absolutely. some of this content. But but I I really I, I'm I'm really excited about this because I I I have made a couple of trips since COVID, but I haven't gone back to New York. And I don't know if I get if I get a chance. You know, I don't know. Maybe I. Yeah, I realize that that's on a Tuesday into Wednesday, so I won't be there for my show on Thursday. But uh, I don't know. Uh, I, does anybody go to the studio anymore? Uh, it's uh, let's just say it's a very small handful. Well, I would certainly like to like to catch up with uh, with with you and and Michael G and others. Yeah, and, and yeah, by, yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, my best thoughts out there, Michael G, uh, in dealing with whatever has uh, you know. Has, yeah, and I know that you had yeah. a situation with your mom and. Yeah, um, all, I do. All of a sudden, our producers or or uh, our board op guys are <laughs> are are being met with uh, with obstacles at home, and and I and look, it can happen to any of us. So yeah, I, I'm glad. That's that, true. So. Anyway, my best to, to Michael G and uh, and uh, and of course, when I get down there next month, I'd I'd love to see some of you guys. So hopefully we can uh, we can see each other. Yeah, I would look forward to that definitely. Well, uh, that about does it for this this program. Um, again, the show goes up as a podcast. You can find it on any of your podcast platforms. Uh, we did Facebook live stream it, so if you go onto my group page associated with Res Resistance Radio, you can. If you want to see me, you can see me on video. But uh, if you really want to see me, come out May second uh, to. Uh, the uh, Judson shirt. I uh, look forward to seeing everybody. I want to thank you, Reggie, and uh, I want to thank all of you for listening. Uh, this is John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio.